This is Jessica. And this is Kelly. And this is the Chasing Brighter podcast. Hello, welcome to today's podcast. Today, Kelly and I interview my wonderful friend, Dr. Sarah Demoyne. She is an assistant professor of elementary education in the Department of Curriculum and Teaching at Auburn University. Her research interests focus on the manner in which race and whiteness are taught in social studies teacher education. Her recent manuscripts can be found in Social Studies and the Young Learner, Journal of Social Studies Research, and Action in Teacher Education. We loved talking with Sarah about a whole bunch of things. I think our interview ran off the rails because we really wanted Sarah to to teach us and break down critical race theory. As we discuss in the interview, it's been weaponized, and so I think it confuses a lot of people as to what it is. And Dr. Des Moines utilizes critical race theory as a lens with which she teaches her students. So take a listen and enjoy this podcast interview with Dr. Sarah Des Moines. So Sarah, you're very fancy. I refer to you a lot because I think it helps <laughs> elevate my social capital things of a friend and she's a professor yeah. and she's really fancy and has her PhD. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your position. And I'm also just interested, do you have the ability as a professor, like if you are noticing students and their struggle or mental health and, and what that kind of, how that plays out? Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor in elementary education at Auburn University. And um, in that role at usually in elementary education, it's pretty um, generalist. If you're a professor in that program, usually have to teach different content areas, just like in elementary school, teachers usually have to teach different content areas. Um, And at Auburn, it is more departmentalized. So I really focus on social studies education. I do teach like an introduction to elementary ed course about some basics um, in the field and profession, but I get to focus mainly on social studies, which is what I'm passionate about doing. Um, And I'm starting my sixth year there. So I feel more settled and kind of know the ropes a little bit more at the university. Um, I will say about our students' mental health in general, speaking about undergraduate students, which I mainly teach undergrads, um, it is very apparent that they are have lots of anxiety, diagnosed and undiagnosed, um, and definitely deal with depression, I think, quite a bit. I will say, though, that I feel like in the past half decade that our students are incredibly open about their mental health. So it would be not surprising at all that in class they talk about a specific diagnosis that they have or about going to a therapist or different things like that. They're quite smart, open smart book about it cool. mm-hmm. and and share about that pretty easily and openly. Like the stigma is, is being, has been reduced. Yeah. But I will say that, um, Usually elementary education majors are women um, and usually they are more kind of quote unquote type A and very much perfectionist. Um, And so I think you see a lot of um, anxiety playing out in that and them wanting to have everything done perfectly or for their lessons to go perfectly well. 
when they like kind of see the complexity of things and that they can't just segment it and check it off, it becomes really stressful for them. And so in the introduction to elementary education course is a class like the semester that um, our students start into the program and we have students in cohorts. So once they start the program, they're in a cohort throughout it. Um, and we've just recognized how hard a shift it is from being in classes where you have three or four exams a semester to being in classes where everything is a project that's long-term and overlapping and just more real life of what a job is going to be like. And so last semester, one of my colleagues um, who also teaches that course talked to our um, counseling services and had um, someone from that office come in once a month to meet for like the last 45 minutes of class and talk with students just about some basic kind of coping techniques and, and dealing with stress and organizational things. And so this semester, I've done that as well in the introduction course. Someone's come in twice and, and talked with students and we'll just continue to do that and keep checking in to see if that's something that seems beneficial. But we also hope it's just kind of an open door that if students recognize that they need um, therapy, that they have like a point person and an easier contact um, that they already know and that they could go to. I love that. Did your colleague notice a, a difference or an impact? She, um, I mean, she talked with her students about it, you know, at the end of the semester about whether that was worth it, if they found it was beneficial and that cohort did. And so we're just going to continue to try it and check in each semester and see how it goes. And I think that's so much what Chasing Brighter is about and what Kelly and I are always talking about is like, don't be like us and wait until your late 30s, early 40s and be like, hmm, how should I handle stress? <laughs> I wish someone would have taught me what is self-care, right? right? And so it's like, oh, that's so great bringing those conversations in um, at that time. Um, and I think that allows for vulnerability and also seems like that's already happening in your classroom anyway, but kind of allowing for vulnerability, openness, and honesty. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the student too, but I think it's hard to distinguish like school deadlines and schoolwork versus self-imposed expectations and the things that people are setting their own, maybe unrealistic expectations and thrashing like emotionally on the fact that like, oh my God, I got to get this done. I got to get this done where it's like, you know, do you really need to get it done right now? Is that you thinking it needs to get done or that is it really done? You know what I mean? Like just being hard on themselves. Yeah, I definitely think there's being hard on themselves. I think there's a lot of time managing yeah. of kind of, yeah. this is my social life. Greek life is very big on Auburn's campus. So this is like my social life. This is class life. And then transitioning into we have practicums that build. And so like in another class I teach, students are out in schools three full days a week, take two classes the other two days a week. So it, it's really transitioning to a job in real life. And that is a hard shift. I mean, for anyone, right? That's a hard shift to make. Um, but they're making it a couple of years earlier than their peers that are also in school. Well, and it's totally, in some ways, I guess, if you think about like education that way, it's a totally different transition. Like when you're doing business work or something, right? You have a business degree, you're like working on Excel in a class and you're like looking at financial statements and then you get a job and it's kind of the same in that way. But like 
it's not like you have like, you know, seven-year-old kids in your college classroom. So, I mean, that is a big shift. So how did you, okay. So before you were at Auburn or how did you get to here? How did you get to where you are now? Cause have you always been in that field of like teaching teachers basically? Always have wanted to teach. Like that's something that I remember always wanting to do and not really, I don't remember really ever wanting to do something different than that. So I, when I went into undergrad, I went into the elementary education program right away. I never changed my major. Um, And when I graduated, moved to Philadelphia, I taught in a middle school and an elementary school setting. When I moved back to Tennessee, there was an opportunity to work um, at my undergrad, where I gone to undergrad. And um, I was able to work with students who were um, like doing their student teaching, like their internship, and I could go and supervise them. So I started doing that and realized that I enjoyed it and had a chance to teach a class. And I really like doing that. And so it's not something I set out to do to be a professor. It's not something I really didn't feel like it was something that I could attain. Like it just wasn't in my imagination to do that. Um, But then once I got the opportunity, I really enjoyed it and um, was able to start doing that. And so I was actually an instructor for two years full-time teaching college courses before I started a PhD program at the University of Tennessee. And, and when then, you were in Philadelphia, right, you mm-hmm. got, you went and got your master's, you went to graduate school, got your master's, then ended yes. up teaching at a collegiate level. And then to get into academia, you, you pretty much have to have a PhD, right? right. At the collegiate level. Yes. And you went back. Mm-hmm. And, and I was planning on continuing to be at a teaching university. Um, and when I graduated, I was really surprised to be able to get a job at Auburn. And so that shifted gear some too from kind of focusing mainly on teaching undergraduate students to including research and outreach and professional service in a different way than I was had set out to do even when I started the PhD program. And what are some, you know, where, so as we get right higher and higher level of uh, academia, right, we start like getting more specific interests, more and more specific in things. And so what has your research been focused on? So I have focused um, pretty much the whole time from my PhD program onward, um, really around the ideas of how to teach race in social studies. Um, And part of that really just came from the fact that I received my undergraduate degree and moved from East Tennessee, a very rural white space, into downtown Philadelphia and taught in um, an urban school where my students were 99% Black. I was prepared in a lot of ways to start teaching. I knew how to write a lesson plan. I could do long-term planning. I had a lot of technical aspects that I knew how to do, but I had never really been challenged to think about how me as a white woman impacts how I'm viewing my students, teaching my students, thinking about the curriculum and communicating the curriculum in any way. And so it took a long time for me to kind of reckon with that, to recognize that I needed to reckon with that, to begin um, the process of thinking through that. And then getting to a place where I was doing graduate work and 
had the language and literacy to be able to really talk about it and dig into it. From early on at the University of Tennessee, I was looking at racial literacy and thinking specifically about critical race theory, which is what was my theoretical lens within my dissertation. And that continue to use in different ways now in the research that I do. And so at Auburn, I look a lot about how other people teach about race, but then also um, thinking about how my students grapple with that and and then thinking about more recently about how to teach difficult histories that are right in our communities that um, are often tied to race as well. And critical race theory has been weaponized, right? And so I know this was our passion in Philadelphia when I was in grad school, did a ton on race and racism. And um, I know that was something that we always kind of connected on. And so that wasn't like a thing. I mean, you know, like there's always been whitewashing of history. There's, Mm -hmm. we have a history of racism and it's like, oh yes, maybe these people's experience would be different than my experience. But now that's been like weaponized and demonized to the point where I was even like, maybe I don't know what critical race theory is because people are freaking out so much about it. Maybe I don't understand it because I didn't think it was a big (laughs) deal. So can you break down critical race theory at like the level of a 10 year old for us so we can really (laughs) understand and and, um, you know, to kind of put that out there so we can understand. I will say the first thing um, that I think is a huge misconception um, is that anytime you talk about race does not mean it's critical race theory. And so when you talk about theory, any kind of theory, you're talking about a specific framework or way that you try to understand a situation. So if I am using critical race theory to try to understand a situation I'm looking at. That's just the framework I'm using to try to make sense of what I'm seeing in front of me. And so um, it's something that was developed um, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a way for people to kind of analyze at first legal situations um, that were happening through a racial lens. And so it is built on some foundational things, just like you talked about racism's always existed in this country. That's a foundational kind of belief and understanding. And so I'm going into a situation recognizing that I'm saying that that's true if I'm taking up a critical race lens. Um, but it also just helps me to kind of understand different issues. So if I'm looking at um, inequities that I see with school funding, let's say, then there's maybe different aspects of critical race theory that I could use to explain it. And so it's really just a way to try to analyze situations. I do think that it's possible to look at different tenets of critical race theory and to think about how they could inform teaching, but it's not something that I'm going into the classroom and doing a lecture on this is what critical race theory is and here are all the tenets of it. So one aspect of critical race theory is that you really value kind of storytelling and people's experiences, particularly um, people of color's experiences that have been marginalized. So if I really value that and I think that their experiences um, and their experiential knowledge should be looked at, that it, it gives us information that we need to see, 
then maybe that's going to inform me as a teacher to say, okay, some things that we're going to read as we're reading about this historical event is going to be written by an indigenous person as we're looking at issues of um, water access and keeping our water clean today, right? And so we're going to highlight that. Like, that's a way that it would inform my teaching, but I'm not then therefore teaching critical race theory. And I think that that's part of the ways that it's misunderstood right now. So are you kind of saying that um, the use of the phrase critical race theory is sort of like not appropriately being used because based on what you're saying, it's sort of like, um, it's this broad lens lens. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about a first grader in an elementary school or a fifth grader, you're not going to go through (laughs) this whole broad theory of what it is. It's more about define really what maybe some of those news blips are talking about is is it appropriate to tell stories of marginalized groups of people, right? right. I mean, I guess that's my, how I'm defining what the controversy right. is. It's not going to be something that you're going into a classroom and teaching a lesson yeah. on. Again, it can like inform your lessons, but it's not what you're doing. And a lot of teachers are probably teaching things that are informed by critical race theory, but they don't know what critical race theory is either. Yeah, Just because right. the tenants yeah. are so commonly there, people may come to conclusions of some of those tenants without even knowing that that's what it is or what it was called, that they're just not using that language, right? Um, Just because they can recognize those patterns within society on their own. Um, And so I think that it, right, like Jesse talked about it being weaponized, and it definitely is, just like the idea of communism was weaponized um, with McCarthyism, right? Um, And so it's just a tool that's being used. And I think that, you know, anytime white supremacy is challenged, then there's going to be a backlash to that. Right. And so well, I live in Chicago, so we don't really get back backlash on people being critical of white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I think, yeah, but, it, but that's, but that's exactly it. Right. Like, I don't, I don't even know the percent, maybe you do Sarah of America. That's like rural or, you know, that wouldn't, that's not urbanized, but it's like, I know, that would be my experience to some extent. Like, so, so, you know, Kelly and I were raised in a very small rural area. We went to Catholic school. Um, I really thought that like everyone was treated equally. I mean, I, I might have thought, you know, at like 18, there was no more racism. You know what I mean? I might have thought that. Um, And then we went to Philadelphia, right. Which was just like a rich, divert, racially diverse city. And then I was being exposed to, you know, racism and um, segregation and just all of these things. And I was like, what is what yeah. is happening? And so it's like, that would have been helpful to have been exposed over, right? The first 22 right. years of my life um, <laughs> right? to see things through a different lens. I think it enriches the classroom to hear about other experiences than my own. Right. Well, and I mean, we, we grew up in not incredibly diverse, but pretty diverse in our like own experiences. And like our hometown was like, what would you say? Like 50% Hispanic. And it was families who came a fairly large, yeah, fairly large Latino population. And And for our school, for where we were like fairly racial, racial diversity, but then it would be more homogenous socioeconomically 
though, right? Yeah. Like people were. That was so, the one thing. I think that's right. probably, we weren't exposed to that stratus of like different incomes. Yeah. Right. And that probably right. would have, and that's probably part of, to me, what I would consider is living in a more rural area. You're not exposed to that either as much, right? Am I getting too deep? Jesse, are you still there? I don't think you're getting too deep. You don't, <laughs> you don't see her. Am I frozen? Kelly made me freeze. <laughs> I was trying to, oh, I think, um, well, I just think just in general, when you live in a smaller area and smaller population, you're going to be, there's going to be less diversity, right? Yeah, that's if there's five people and there's a million people, right. You're going to be exposed to more di diversity, you know? And I think, um, and this is where it's so interesting. And I, I, I've always loved this, you know, Sarah, I, I want to say you're the first person that that's maybe I think said the term white privilege around me. Right. And so are you still doing lessons on white privilege? Um, I would say we will talk about white privilege, but I would honestly say that I probably have moved away from that somewhat just because it individualizes things instead of looking at kind of the systemic measures yeah. that keep oppression in place. Yeah. And so I've pushed um, students to kind of, and also, um, a lot of exercises around white privilege, I think, can help some people become aware, but it just leaves them in that like, okay, now I know this and what am I doing with it? Yeah. Right. Like there's no kind of like actionable thing after that, which then often just leads to like these examples of white guilt or white defensiveness that either are not useful. And so I think that um, one shift, and I think one thing that critical race theory can help people do is shift from looking at kind of racism in any way as just like individual acts yeah. and to move that to like, no, these are systems in place and institutions. Yeah. Um, it's structurally here. And until that is kind of like torn down at this bigger level, then it's going to continue to be maintained and that I am going to continue to benefit from it <laughs> often while people of color continue to be um, denigrated from it. So um, in Chicago, the it's, it's a very much focus of, you know, giving equal opportunities to all, all people, right? All the population. And so what they have done for high school, they changed the admissions process. And so there's a tiering system in the city where your house or your street or whatever it is, the home value, you're given a tier. So if you live in a very affluent street or neighborhood, which means you, the average sale price of a house is like over a million dollars, whatever, you're tier four or whatever the price is, 800,000, I don't know what. And then it, it goes down, right? So if you live in a very um, low socioeconomic neighborhood with houses that are more that are cheaper, basically, lower, you're yeah, tier one, Mary. right? Mm -hmm. And so it goes from tier one to tier four. And then what they've done is they've taken that tiering system and they are only like allowing 25%, let's say there's four tiers, 25% per tier allowed into these really prestigious selective enrollment public high schools that you have to test into. So you test in, you get your test score. There's that plus only 25% of kids in your socioeconomic group are admitted in. And so 
What's interesting about Chicago then is, is the tier four families, everybody's sending their kids for high school, sending the kids to, to tutors and all this stuff to get into the really good high schools. Now uh, you have to get like a 99, like a 95% on your admissions test if you're in a tier four, even 99. My, my doctor's um, son got a 99% on his admissions test and had all A's and one B on his transcript in his seventh grade year and he didn't get in to this prestigious high school because he was a tier they live in a tier four neighborhood isn't that crazy and i'm not saying that's a problem but i think to your point i what there um there are uh cities or people are trying to put these frameworks in place right to give equal opportunity and to give those opportunities to people who don't have parents who are going to pay tutors and all these things to try to get them in. And yet the white affluent people continue to try to game the system this way. You can't really game it. I don't. Well, like, yeah. It's like, how do you repair or fix a broken system? That's interesting. Yes. I don't know the outcomes of things like that. I, I don't know. I don't know if Sarah, you know, the outcomes of different strategies trying to equal the playing field, but I would say the kid that had all the tutors and how they think that kid's fine. be fine. That's the right. thing. And I think I mean, what's going to happen is gonna be fine. <laughs> what's ultimately going to happen in the city is I think it's going to be a great leveling of the education system, because if your kid didn't get in, they're going to go to a less prestigious around the corner public school that doesn't have a lot of resources and stuff, but you're going to have more and more kids starting to perform better. It's going to hopefully raise up. Maybe that's a theory. Maybe it just will raise up everybody. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe that's the theory, but I think the reality is that it probably just means like another round of white flight out of public school systems and into another like kind of private setting, right? Like if I can't get into this prestigious school that I'm wanting to get into, am I, our family is going to send their kids to what they consider like a lower level school, or are they going to say, no, I'm going to, we're going to get out of the public schooling system and then kind of well so so i think that's an interesting point and um what it'll it's going to be very telling because this is all like literally happening now but i think it's like you have an awareness right that they're trying to make good or bad systematic change in chicago yeah it reminds me so i worked at boys town um and if anyone's unfamiliar with boys town um, where I was, it's a group home for adolescent children that are removed from the home. And it's a lot of programming. They're implementing a lot of programming, but it's kids who, who with like behavioral, pro- not as much abuse and neglect, but like behavioral issues, right? And they live in this family home setting where there are these parent teachers, uh, you know, they want a married couple. It is a, I think a Catholic or Christian-based program, but they want a married couple in the home 24-7, right, teaching the kids. So I used to be a therapist and go in the homes or they would come to the office and I would do individual therapy. You do this thing um, that the the it's evading me what it's called, but it's a diagram, right, to look at your family, right? Look at your family history. Um, and you kind of go through like, okay, who are your parents, grandparents, all the kids, right? And And, and these kids were teenagers and my eldest was in kindergarten. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about your family system. Right. And I mean, it's a mess, right? People are in jail. There's drug abuse, addiction, 
kid was lucky if they were living with, you know, a biological parent, a lot of kids, a lot of poverty. And I remember doing this and thinking this kid never, never had a chance. Right. I mean, at birth, they were like one of eight limited resources in the family. And then I go to my daughter, the time going to a private school, you see all the kids dual income families. And you're like, I was just like comparing them. And I just had this overwhelming emotion of like feeling so upset that the kids are saying at Boys Town, right? It was like the odds were so much against them from the beginning. Kelly, are you familiar with that? Who was that that guy? It was on YouTube going around. And it, I think it was about privilege, but it was like, you know what I'm talking about? They had all the kids in a line and they're like, step forward. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And he was like, step forward if you've ever missed a meal or whatever, or, or step, step back, right? Step forward if you have uh, two parents at home. Step back if you you know, um, I don't even know, right? Whatever. Don't have a car in your home. Step back, right? And it was showing the disparity of children. And so I think that's kind of um, what we're talking about. And to me, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of the lens of critical race theory to kind of recognize that there are systems in place um, and things that are set up, Mm -hmm. that there are kids at the very beginning that didn't even, didn't even have a story. Yeah. Didn't even get it you know, a chance to realize like, whoa, I was born and I'm 20 steps ahead of these kids already. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. I think that it can give you, um, lenses and language to go back and kind of look at what is the continuing kind of legacies of even if you want to talk about enslavement and kind of the ways that families are strategically broken up of enslaved people. Right. And just continuing to see different ways that, um, things like bedlining and stuff that created these places where there's affluent neighborhoods and not poor neighborhoods, right? Like it helps you to be able to kind of talk about that in more structural ways that it wasn't just happenstance. And it wasn't just that like this family has had a hard time. Or that family works harder. They're just harder workers. Right. Or whatever it is. Right. Right. Yeah. Helps you to kind of see the systemic issues over time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. I remember looking for a cartoon trying to show my kids. Like there's a great cartoon around COVID talking about um, uh, just kind of like systematic racism, you know, and it's kind of like Mm -hmm. trying to explain it to my kids. And it's important. um, My kids are at a charter school, but it's important that they're at a a school um, for me with a lot of, um, racial and socioeconomic diversity. And I think too, like what you were saying, Sarah, what I'm hearing you say, and I love, I think it's so amazing that you're changing your lesson plans and changing things and evolving and growing. And so it seems like what you were saying is, Hey, when I talked about white privilege, I think that like, what I'm hearing you say is like, it makes it individual and offensive and like people put their defenses up. Right. And, and it's like, they hear white privilege. That's about me. I'm having these visceral reactions. I'm not even going to listen to anything you're saying because I become defensive. But when you're like, when you're like, this is a systematic thing, it like takes them out of it. And maybe they can be more open-minded to it and not so like closed and defensive about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it can, and and I think you can come back to obviously like individual decisions and things that you're learning and stuff like that. But um, the reality is that a student in class that kind of changes their thought process is not going to change what is happening in our country. Only kind of changing the systems is what's going to actually yeah. make bigger changes. Yeah. Like, there is a heart component to that, but like we can be kind all we want. That's not changing someone else's situation. So 
that makes it harder to think about and it makes it more um depressing is not the word I'm looking for but that's what's coming to mind like it it is more dire and feels more overwhelming um to think about it that way but I think we have to be realistic about that part obviously it's good to be kind to people so I don't mean that but like yeah. Right. It's fair what you say. Um, what's interesting is what I thought was interesting with my own kids is, you know, we don't we don't talk about race in our we didn't talk about race in our house. We don't use, you know, offensive language about other people. Um, even being more like as a lot of stuff coming out, like being less and less even just xenophobic, right? Making comments about different groups of people or whatever. As my kids were when they were young, I just remember Wes making a comment about there was like uh, a, a black kid in his class and it was like i have peach skin and he has brown skin and he was like talking about the different colors of skin and he just didn't see any other thing and then as they've gotten older he learns about martin luther king and like i feel like he's learned about race in a way and he's it's good that he's learning the history but like up until then he had no notion right about that the color of your skin, like he, he, this innocence that everyone's just naturally treated equal, right? Cause he's raised in this world that that was how it is up until a moment where he's now being taught that he needs to be aware, right? Of like different groups of people and how they were treated. And um, I think it's very much, I mean, we live in a city. So I just feel like it's a very much open Thing. I mean, granted, like we, my kids live through the riots in Chicago. So there's Black Lives Matter signs everywhere all the time. Um, and so, you know, I think those conversations have continued to come up with, with them. But it's just interesting for children, really, they don't know, except for maybe what their parents expose them to. But I would say that's the privilege, right? Like, that's Wes's privilege to not have to be aware of race. And yes. fortunately, yeah. Yeah. there are kids that are, are aware of it very young because there is hatred and there oh, is it's racism terrible. Yeah, I know. and um, it's terrible. I've heard people over my lifetime say things to children. I was just like, what is that? They're so people are terrible, right? Like, and, and it's a learned behavior and they were taught that was okay to say those things. But um but yeah, that's, then that's on, on us, right. To, I don't, I think it's like, yes, beautiful and wonderful to, we're all human, right. If we could all see the humanity and recognize that, I think that's amazing. Um, but then to also kind of recognize as well, um, we're not all treated equally. And I think that's important for our kids. So it's also interesting, just, you know, Sarah, that you talk about it in the field of social studies. So I would say, even seeing my own children go through getting their education on social studies, it's very different than how it was when we were kids where it was like, let's talk about Paz de Leon and how he, you know, the conquistadors and <laughs> all this stuff, which is like, no, that guy actually like, you know, n very few of like early explorers were really that great of humans. You know, they had slaves and they just slaughtered people and didn't really care and just took everybody's gold. Um, so it's like, I feel like there's like less emphasis now on the things that we learned about and more about just like what is societies, right? And how things evolved. And um, I think that the way that that's being taught is changed. Do you see that in like what you're teaching? 
Well, I don't think that, I think it's different in different places. Okay. Okay. Say that. okay. Um, I think I would like to say that there's more change than, um, than maybe there has been when I was growing up. Um, but I'll also say that I'm here teaching in Alabama, yeah. um, in the deep South and there's still very like racist texts that I think are in classrooms. Um, so I think there's a, there's definitely difference. I think um, state standards are different. And so you have some states who have, you know, passed legislation recently to require like indigenous studies within their state standards, um, right? And that's completely absent in other states. We obviously know that there's like legislation that's just been passed to restrict talking about race um, and gender um, within classrooms and will great effects on the curriculum that's taught or mm. really used. I mean, like the whole purpose is, is to produce fear so that teachers just don't touch topics, whether or not that's really what's legislated or not. Right. Yeah. And so I think it will be really telling in the next few years what this legislation wave really does to the teaching that happens. Hmm. And and that is very divided, right? Like there's half of the states that have or close to half that have passed legislation making restrictions and then half that haven't. And so um, we have state curriculums, not national ones. And so it's really mm-hmm. different. Yeah. So it sounds like it's very individualized depending on where you are geographically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I don't want to say that in terms of like, oh, I think like if you're in the North, like the, the civil war is taught incredibly well all the time. I don't mean that, but like, yeah, it definitely is um, different from state to state. And I think different between districts too, because districts yeah. have some, you know, autonomy on what they stress and well, um, even don't. I mean, just to that point, I mean, my experience has been even at a school level schools have um i think increasingly i get the sense that i don't know how much stuff gets pushed down from a uh, like public schools everyone has to use this curriculum or they get kind of a choice of curriculums and so um it seems like principals at both private and public maybe have a lot of authority over some things as well yeah, I so at all the schools my kids have been to, and I, and I have friends that are teachers. I have clients that are teachers. Like I have a friend, they bought the curriculum for the whole school or whatever, and they were like, "This is it. This is your book. This is what you're teaching." Bam! Every all the lesson plans, everything were done. And I remember when Dominic was in kindergarten, we had a change of teacher last minute, and I was talking to the new teacher, and it was just like she was like, "I don't know." like, uh, you know, common core had been put out and she had not taught before then. And she was like, we can do whatever we want. Like we have to hit these markers, but our lesson plans can be whatever. And so, right. That's the same school district and each school is handling it completely differently. Um, and so, and so you're right, like depending on, on the principal, how much people are going in the classroom and saying what's taught. It got me thinking, Jess, you know, all the testing is being done. It's, ELA and math. Right. And so how, what about social studies? Like, where does that, I mean, that's a really important part, right? 
Yeah. In science too, but we can talk about They're that later. Not, it is not we don't in have a science teacher. the schools at CCSD. Science and social studies, depending on your principal and depending on the school, yeah. you have it or you don't. You have it or you don't. It is not um, he, here in Nevada necessarily, depending on your school. Well, I think that, right, like there, that's probably a whole nother conversation to talk about standardized assessments and their um, purpose. Um, but I think that, right, I, I feel like when you talk about schools and you talk about kind of the jargon around why schools exist, right, that at least people will say that schools like exist to help create citizens, like engaged citizens, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a common like mantra. Okay. Now we can really talk about like the history of like schools being used to um, produce people to go into particular jobs <laughs> and to make capitalism work. Right. But like people will say the mantra is to create engaged citizens. And yet what's usually cut the first, besides the arts, what's usually cut right after the arts is social studies from elementary on. Um, and so I think that social studies, obviously I have an affection for it, but really is like just teaching us about humanity and how to be people um, in the world. And if we wanna talk about being citizens, I think we talk all the time about like, oh my gosh, like, what's going on? Oh, we just had an insurrection at our Capitol. And yet we're still not making a pivot to say, oh, maybe we should teach about citizenship. Right. Or about like government and election rules. Yes. Or, you know, how to have um, dialogue in a classroom, right? Like there's no space for dialogue in a classroom Mm -hmm. because we're worried about the testing in the classroom. Right. And so I think in general, there's just such not everywhere, but there's such disservice in so many schools, particularly schools that are named as failing schools or at-risk schools are given the most rigid curriculum and the most scripted curriculum that is only about testing and then does not develop opportunities for really thinking critically and using content in the ways that you would try to use it in real life. Well, I think we could, right, we could have 10 million conversations because what comes up for me is, and I do, and I I understand the social contract and all the things, but like, I do think that we've come to a society where we dump our children at the school for 40 hours a week, and then the teachers are supposed to do everything. It's also like, uh, can't parents teach about citizenship and humanity, you know, like, isn't that our onus if we're producing children? Um, yeah, to teach I think them how that, to be human. Yeah, I think just so that's like a whole right. I don't know shifting to solutions, right? <laughs> Especially like what we're what as a as a parent, right? Making choices that you're um, exposing your kids. Sarah, check me on this and add comments. Exposing your kids to diversity, different thoughts and thinking. When you're selecting schools, be aware of how the kids are being taught and what the curriculum is and the the overall feel of the school, I think you can kind of get a sense of what is important to them and how that is being carried out in the classrooms that you want to make sure that you're not just looking at testing. Yeah. And I would say be actively engaged as a citizen too, right? Like all of a lot of changes and a lot of things that school boards put in place is because of the minority of very loud 
parents who are at the school saying, we want these restrictions, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't want our kids to talk about gender. We don't want our kids to talk about race. Um, and they need to be hearing from all of the parents who say, no, we do need this, right? Um, for our Congress men and women to be hearing like, no, this is the legislation we want or don't want. And so I think that that kind of like political voice is definitely something that just gonna like to get back to your point about teaching about humanity. I think teaching that political voice is also really important. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great do too. point too, right? That we, yeah, we have a voice we, that we can be doing at home. I always took my kids, even when they were in strollers, when I go vote, I took them with me mm-hmm. to go vote and we talk about voting and I'm like, we need to be, this is a democracy. We need to be actively participating. And I think Kelly and I talk about that a lot with anything, right? It's like people want to complain and complain about anything, anything, not political, right? About work or a friend or whatever, but it's like, we have a voice, right? You have an opportunity to try to make change mm-hmm. and kind of being, how can we practice utilizing that voice and demonstrating that to our children? I think we could talk for 20 hours straight or something. I think this is fascinating, right? I love talking about this and I um, appreciate you, my fancy professor friend for taking the time out of your, yes, (laughs) my doctor, fancy professor friend um, who, you know, globally travels and does presentations and research and, and teaches um, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule mm-hmm. to have this conversation, for breaking down critical race theory for me. us, um, and uh, yeah, for educating us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Yes, bye. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening and joining us today. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Chasing Brighter or on our blog, ChasingBrighter.com.